Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to uh, continue with our sermon series. It is called The Good Life. And two weeks in, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it's been heavy, heavy at times, but hopeful. We learned in week one that everything under the sun is meaningless, and in week two, we learned the solution to that meaninglessness is death. So today, we are just going to keep on trucking in the power of positivity, and uh, this week we're going to be looking at a part of scripture that you might remember, depending on your generation and, and what kind of music you like. If you like the birds and you remember the song, Turn, 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 you will recognize that from scripture today. If you don't remember them, um, just be glad you never had to have that haircut. So let's get going. Today is about seasons, mystery, and living in today, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's get reading together. For everything, scripture says, there is a season a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Everything, for everything, there is a season. These, um, I will argue with you today, these are ingredients of life. We actually don't want ingredients of life. We want options. We want options. Have you ever gone car shopping? We went to buy a car in 2009. I'll put it on the screen. What we ended up with is this glorious, high-powered, 103-horsepower Toyota Yaris. We went, my wife and I, to the dealership with the uh, stated between each other, what we are going to do is walk away with the cheapest car on the lot. That's what we said. The, we, we show up at this lot, very nice, huge, glass, polished surfaces, and chrome everywhere, and the latest of everything. And the salesman came out to greet me, and I felt bad for him immediately because I knew his commission that day was not going to be great. He says, hey, hey, folks, how can I help you? And I said, you can help me by showing me the cheapest car on the lot. And he goes, well, come on back to my desk. Let's talk about that. And I said, great. Is the cheapest car on the lot at your desk? And so we go to his desk. We sit down, and he starts going through all of the options. Automatic transmission. I said, I don't want that. Oh, okay. And he goes, well, we have power locks and windows. You're going to want that. I was like, actually, can we have like the ones you roll? Because those are a lot more fun. And I could use that. I'm not that big, but I can get swole if I roll. And he's like looking at me like, this guy's not totally serious. And so we're going through it. And I said, you know what? The only thing my wife said before we showed up today is, can it please not be a red hatchback? Because uh, here's a little backstory. We already had a red hatchback, and we were about to buy a second red hatchback. And she was like, can it just not be, can we not be the family with two red hatchbacks? Because something about that just feels off. So he goes, well, I got good news for you. I can actually get you the one you wanted. 
stripped out of all the things. I was like, does it have to have a steering wheel? Can I use some sort of pole system? Is that cheaper? He's like, I can get you a blue one, and it's only 500 extra. You put that out over the term of the payments. It's like 80 cents a week. You know, you're great for a blue one instead of a red one. And I said, I'll let you strip the paint off if you'll give me $100 back. And he goes, okay, I guess we're getting a red one. So we walked away with a red car. The point of which was, I got all of the options I wanted. It was manual transmission. Everything had to be done by hand. You had to crank it up in the morning, and you had to feed the hamsters at night. It was a whole story because I knew the options I wanted. I didn't want him to choose. I was choosing. We love to choose our options. Everything about us, we, wanted, we want to know what's available, and then we want to pick just right because we are consumers at heart. Americans, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Americans, 21st century Americans are apex predator consumers in the history of mankind. We consume more and have more variety to consume than anyone ever. When, when, when it's opposed, it's almost refreshing to see someone oppose our consumeristic tendencies. I had a friend in San Antonio who opened a coffee shop. He was a, you've heard of coffee snobs. I don't know whatever, like the furthest degree of that is, but he was the furthest degree. There were three things on his menu. He would only make them the way he wanted to make them, and he served them to you exactly as he wanted to serve them to you. He was open three days a week for four hours a day. Didn't make any sense. He didn't care. People found out he was open, heard that it was great, and would come in and say, um, can I like have a caramel frappuccino? And he had, they didn't always talk like that, but usually they did, right? So he had, he had maps printed, and he would go, you absolutely can. Starbucks, is, you're going to want to out that door, take a right. You're going to two lights down, take a left into the street. You'll find your Starbucks. That's where you can get that because I will not serve you one. And I was like, I want to be this guy's friend. This is incredible. He says no to people. And um, those people weren't real happy. But something about that was like refreshing. He was saying no. Because the trouble for us is we think about consumption and ingredients and, and options and all those things. Is whether we know it or not, our culture, especially our culture, we have become that way when it comes to church and faith. We coined the term in the last decade or two, church shopping. Those two things never went together. You went to church. Now you go church shopping until you find the right church. It's like finding the right frappuccino that you wanted or a pair of blue jeans that fits just right. You go church shopping until you find the one that's just kind of, the, this flatters me. I like that. Good. I'll take this church. Can you get the one that has like music like Hillsong? That's what I want. Can they have lights and those fog machines like I'm at a Bieber concert or something? That's kind of cool. Makes me feel important when I'm there. I like that. Uh, preaching, maybe no Ecclesiastes. We've learned we don't really like that book. Um, can we get it like a TED Talk, shorter, more inspiring um, Bible optional? That would be good if we can get that kind of preaching. And then, and then can we get kids programming that's like bluey combined with Jesus and just mix it up and then let my kids have Australian accents? And can we do that? If you are here looking for that, you're going to go out those doors and to your left, you're going to find our parking lot, and you're going to want to keep driving and find the church that may have some of those options. Uh, life is not intended to be a consumptive experience. What Scripture is telling us today is life is not intended to be a consumptive experience. The preacher, uh, who is the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, identifies himself as the preacher. The preacher is not laying out options. Weep or laugh, mourn or dance. He's laying out ingredients. You ever been to a restaurant where the menu says no substitutions? And it's like low-level offensive when you see that. Even if you don't want to do a substitution, it's low-level offensive. I'm paying, can I just say, like my wife hates cilantro. 
It tastes like soap to her. 43% of America, it tastes like soap to you. I don't know why it does. See some, I got hands. I see that hand, sir. Um, That's what, it tastes like soap. She's like, I just don't want it because there's a whole science behind it. It tastes like soap. Because can I not have soap in my food? And they're like, sorry, it says no substitutions. And you go, well, that's kind of borderline offensive. When you go to a restaurant like that, you feel sort of borderline offensive, even if you don't hate cilantro. It's like we are allergic to things. And so we look at life like that. Like life should have substitutions. Like I'm allergic to mourning. I have a, I have a grief intolerance, Jesus. So can I maybe not go through that? And we work our way through life kind of like hoping to mix and match the ingredients to get just the meal we want out of it. And what the preacher is saying is if you breathe, you will experience love and hate. You will have mourning and dancing. You will have laughter and weeping. You will have them all. If you live long enough, you'll experience the fullness of all the ingredients. And the question for you is like, is that hopeful or depressing? And the answer to that question is it's beautiful. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He says he's made everything beautiful in its time. This is going to be hard for some of us. Um, we probably should talk about mystery. True crime has gotten really popular lately. People like true crime things, true crime podcasts and television shows and true crime. Like it's, it Basically, it's a mystery, but it's a real-life mystery, and so you kind of like to follow along until you figure out who done it. It's the whole who done it book. It's Agatha Christie for a new generation. And we, we kind of, it's exciting because you don't know until like the last few minutes or the last page, you don't know who did it, and there's a mystery about it. I actually think that's the way we have to approach this idea that life is a certain series of ingredients that, that we don't get to choose the options, we just get to experience them. It's a bit of a mystery as to how that's beautiful. Because some of you are in seasons right now, and you're like, this isn't beautiful, this is not fun at all. And he goes, no, no, it's beautiful, just a few pages further, you'll see you'll see. Eventually, it's beautiful. The weeping and the mourning, he says it's beautiful, even if you cannot see it today. It has a point. There is a purpose. The thing you're going through right now is not without redemptive quality. And some of you are going through big things right now. So you might say, man, that's cool for little stuff, or that's cool for the fender bender where I met the man I was supposed to marry. You know, you're like, oh, that's cute. No. He says, everything is beautiful in its time. Your suffering unimaginable loss had a beauty imbued in it. God isn't flippantly saying, hey, it's all good, you know, whatever, we'll figure it out eventually. Like, he's not, he's not up there kind of wondering what's next. He exists in time. Scripture teaches us God exists in time with you. He's here now. Your prayers are answered. God is here. He's also outside of time. So he's in time with you, and he's outside of time as well. C.S. Lewis really did a good job in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He explained that it's like God is the author of the book and the editor and the publisher and the main character all at once. And so God not only is in the book, in the story with you. He's also able to zoom out of the story, erase some things, move stuff around, and he also knows what's on the back page. That's how it ends. He knows. So he's in the story with you, and he's also outside writing the story of you, which is um, sort of a mystery, right? 
Like we want to think that that, like I, when I read that, I was like, oh, I get it now. And then I thought about it more and I went, actually, I don't get anything. But it's a better explanation of what I don't fully understand than what I had previously, which is mystery, which is also beautiful. He's saying there is an ending that's been written. Like it'll all fit the plot eventually. We have friends who went through a nightmare season of marriage and they came out stronger. They would say that season was hell for us. But now looking back, we can see that it was necessary and and it it actually leans on everything else we're going to do in our lives. They would say it made them better. It made them stronger. We have other friends who've been through the same nightmare season of marriage that was hell for them and it just ended. And the marriage ended and the pain multiplied and it just sort of kept going. And they would go, I mean, that's great that they had like a happy ending and they can see it, but mine didn't go that way. I'm still in pain. I'm still dealing. And God is saying, I won't waste that pain. I don't waste your pain. I know you're in the season where it's, it's weeping and not laughing, where it's mourning and not dancing. I know you're in that season. I won't waste it. There's a point and there's a purpose and there's a redemptive quality to every season you're in, whether it's a short season, a long season, whether it feels like your whole life has been one Murphy's Law experiment after another where you just keep falling over things. God says, I'm not wasting it, I promise. Everything is beautiful in its time. The problem is that in 2022, everything is explainable. We have lost the appetite for mystery. 15 years ago, if you had a bar bet going and somebody goes, no, I heard it's this, and somebody else says, no, it's that. Quarterback for the Browns in 1968 was this guy, and the other one goes, no, it wasn't that guy, it's this guy. Well, you would argue about it, and then you'd leave, and you would have just had an interesting conversation arguing about something. The sun is how hot? I think it's this, I think it's that. Oh, well, how would we ever know? Today, when you have an argument with anybody about anything, what does somebody always do? just check that on you. Like the truth police. And then they're pulling up Google and they Google whatever the thing. And they're like, actually, the sunspots are only this. You know, and you're like, well, that was fun. There goes the conversation. Let's move on. Um, because everything, we don't like mystery. We want everything to be explainable. It's Googleable. I can figure out the fact of anything. I have a kid who's like this. I have a kid who's into science facts. There's one over there. It's not her. Okay. I just want to get her off the hook. Okay. She's cool. We will say, I'll be like, oh, man, those orca whales, killer whales, you know, like they are killers. And she'll be like, actually, you know, and then she'll give me 800 facts. The female orca actually spends her life, and you're like, oh, gosh, I I can't handle more of these facts. But she's right, and she doesn't want me to live in the mystery of it. She doesn't want me to be ignorant, so she just tells me what it is. But that's how we are. We don't like mystery. We don't like not knowing. We don't like not knowing what tomorrow is. How many of you checked... How many of you checked the weather this morning? Just by show of hands, how many of you checked the weather? A vast majority of you checked the weather. When you looked out your window, what did you see? It's lightning and thunder and nighttime dark. And you were like, I wonder what the weather's like today. Looks like it's going to rain. You knew that, like you knew, but you wanted to see what it was going to do in an hour and a half or maybe in two and a half hours or what about 3 p.m.? What if I want to mow? I should check. And it's like, it doesn't really matter if you knew. The mystery of what the weather's going to be like next Tuesday, you can find out. You can look right now if you're curious. It doesn't matter. We hate mystery. We hate not knowing. And so we are desperate to know. And this is why we fall out of faith because faith has mysterious things happening. And if we think you can't find the answer to it, we just write it off. 
When there is no science, when there is no Google, when there is no app for it, our culture says it's not worth knowing about. If you can't know it, it isn't worth knowing. And you're like, well, what's that? I would say that's a profound distaste for mystery that we've developed. On some level, like on some level, you get that a forest fire is both destructive and restorative, right? You get that a forest fire is both destructive and restorative. It's devastating. It's also healthy for the forest. It burns everything down and is the best thing that can happen to the forest in the long term. We all get that. The forest fire is both devastating and really great. In the middle of the hellscape of the flaming forest fire, nobody's going, isn't this cool how restorative this is going to be? What we say is, I got to get out of this. This is bad. And our lives look like that sometimes. We're in the middle of a thing and we're like, this is awful and I have to get out. And while that may be true, it's not safe to be in the forest fire. That then taints us from ever understanding that that forest fire does have redemptive qualities and values in it. And the same is true with every season of our lives. We want out of pain. We want out of mystery. We want out of anything that makes us uncomfortable. And yet God says, I've made it beautiful in its time. I promise I'm not wasting it. Starting to get the idea. Mystery simply implies we have a limited perspective. Mystery doesn't mean it's unknowable. It means we have a limited perspective. When Agatha Christie, the great uh, whodunit writer of the 1930s, 50s, whatever, it's old, um, she wrote, and then there were none, that like every sixth and seventh grader has to read at some point. And then there were none. It was like these 10 people show up at this house and one of them's the killer and you don't find out until the last page who it is. One at a time, they all disappear. I know what that was. Ooh, it's like we moved the train tracks next to the church. Okay. That's a mystery. Okay, you're never going to know what that was. So when Agatha Christie is writing a mystery novel, she knows what's on the last page. We don't. And there's this thing in us that wants to know, but it implies a limited perspective. She's the author. She knows. She has the full perspective. I, the reader, don't have the full perspective, and so I need to continue turning pages until I get there. The same is true with human beings living life under the guise or under the guard of the Creator. The Creator knows the last page, the Creator knows the end of the story, the Creator's already written it out. We, living life today, not knowing tomorrow, we have a limited perspective as to what's coming next and how the story ends. We have some clues and some prophecy and we have some things and some ideas and some, okay, but we don't have the end of the story. We have a limited perspective. I didn't ask my wife if I could tell this story, but I think she'll be okay with it. If not, you just tell her it was really good and you're glad you heard it. She had, um, in college, she had a deep heartbreak. She was engaged to be married and it ended. The guy blew it, basically, is what he did, and he ends the engagement. And my wife is left with profound heartbreak, but she had a limited perspective, right? (laughs) I mean, I think it worked out pretty well, okay? (laughs) She's on her phone Googling that guy's name, like, oh gosh, where'd he go? Um, But she would say, I've heard her say, one of the best things that ever happened to me was this guy breaking off our engagement was one of the best things that ever happened to me. 
because my life went a totally different direction. She, one, watched his life, and it went off the rails. She watched her life and saw that God has brought her grace upon grace upon blessing. And she looks back and says, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. If you asked her in that moment, as she's pulling the ring off her finger and just totally having a season of full breakdown, is this one of the best things that ever happened to you? What would she say? What are you talking about? How insensitive of you. And yet, with the perspective of hindsight, with a little bit of perspective, she begins to recognize that what she went through was not going to go unredeemed. And the same is true for each and every one of us, no matter what our season is. There is a place where this all fits together. In verse 11, it is said he has put eternity into the human heart. He's put, he, God has put eternity into your heart. What does that mean? That means that there is a wholeness that exists beyond the toil and the meaninglessness that God has buried a hint of eternity within you. You know what life is supposed to be like. Absent sin and brokenness and all of the, you know what it's actually supposed to be like. Somewhere in you, you know when it's right. And you know what's waiting. He's put eternity in your heart. You know what's waiting. Isaiah 46, God said, I, I made this. Essentially says, I made this. I'm over this every aspect and I'm going to accomplish my purposes. God says, I got this. I know where I'm going and it's all going to get done. Wait and watch me. And so some people will read that and go, so God is like distant then, isn't he? He's distant and unknowable because it doesn't seem to matter what we want. He knows what he wants and he's going to get it done. So he's distant and unknowable, right? And we'd say, no, wrong. Psalm 139, God is intimately in your presence. He says he knew you and he knit you together in your mother's womb. So both are true. God is both in charge of everything forever and always and intimately with you right now in this moment. He is personal. Scripture says that God is involved in putting together every molecule of your being before you were even a being. That sort of God can't be packaged up or consumed. He won't be manipulated or leveraged. So to think that we fully understand God is foolishness. What we have on our hands is mystery. And he makes clear in the mystery that he's in charge, that we don't add anything to the equation. The other thing is we try to leverage God. We're like, well, if I pull these right strings, I'll get what I want. So that's just a different way of consuming is we're like, if I, if I leverage God with my behavior, then he'll, he'll have to respond with blessing. Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't need this church. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That's a pretty big statement. God isn't served by us. God doesn't need me to stand up here and talk to you any more than he needs you to go out and feed the homeless. He doesn't need it. I think he's blessed by it. I think he has joy in it. He doesn't need it. He's complete. He doesn't need our church buildings, our service projects. He doesn't need our worship songs. He doesn't need them. He's complete. And it says he alone gives life and breath. And just for effect, everything else. Just so no one could come to God and be like, yeah, well, it says it gives life and breath, but it didn't say anything about like finances. You know, like, you're like, hey, you're not going to sneak one past him. He gives life and breath, everything else too. He gives it. If you have it, it's from him. If it came to you, it passed through his hands. That's a hard one. That's mystery. If it came to you, good or bad, it passed through his hands at some point. 
He doesn't create evil. He doesn't send evil. He doesn't send your pain necessarily, but it passes through his hands and he says, I will redeem it. And so the mystery deepens that we have an all-powerful, all-knowing God who doesn't need us and still lets us participate in his redemptive work. He lets us partner in his majesty. He lets us play a role in his glory and his grace. And I will admit to you, I do not get it. I don't fully get it. If you say, can we come talk more about that? I'll say, yes, but you'll do the talking and I'll listen. And at the end, I'm going to say, I I don't totally get it. And I'm super comfortable with that. I'm glad it's true. Back to the preacher, verse 12. I perceived, he says, that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. That phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It's coming out of here, it's falling out of Ecclesiastes. That's the concept. You can't add anything to God that you came from dust and you're going to go back to dust, and so you might as well enjoy the life you have. Some people read this as fatalism, like, well, then nothing really matters. Don't misread it like that. It doesn't say that. This is not fatalism, it's freedom. It's not fatalism, it's freedom. God has done it so that people fear before him. We misread that one too, like, okay, well, fear, God is like a cosmic bully then? What is he trying to do? So let's talk about fear. Let's spend a minute on fear. My generation, I'm uh, on the back end of Generation X or the front end of the millennials, and I I regret um, anybody ever saying that about me. I'm part of the Oregon Trail generation. We're in between. We're a little sliver. 1979 to 1982, if you're in there, welcome to our generation. We are a transitional generation, and if you are in that generation, probably if you're Gen Xer, you get it too. Um, Fear in the 80s was a little different than fear today. Today, we're like afraid of who's on the other end of the computer that's like texting us. Like, I wonder what this scam's about. In the 80s, the only thing we knew to be afraid of was vans, right? Remember this? <laughs> vans. If like you see a van, I'm terrified of that van. We were taught, everything taught us, be afraid of vans. We did not wear helmets with anything. None of us wore seatbelts. Long road trips, kids are just everywhere. There was no seatbelts. There was no helmets. We played on railroad tracks so happy. We were having a great time. We ate processed foods exclusively. If it didn't come in a microwave, it probably wasn't that nice. Our heroes were some sort of crime-fighting dog, a bear that was nervous about forest fires, and the Mr. Yuck sticker. These were our heroes in the 80s. Can we talk about Mr. Yuck for a minute? Who had a Mr. Yuck sticker somewhere in their house? You remember this? Yes, some people. This was on every poison in my house. This is what the poison control people gave out so that Parents would put stickers on all the things you shouldn't drink because kids apparently were drinking a lot of poison things. So many of us were drinking poison. Everybody then, everybody I knew had these on every poison under, like under the sink. You just had Mr. Yuck stickers everywhere. Can we talk about that? Do you know what kids love almost more than anything? Stickers. (laughs) I got an idea. Let's put stickers on the things they shouldn't touch. You know, it was just like, it didn't make any sense. Put stickers on the poison, that'll do it. The point of the story is we had no clue, okay? The one thing we did know was don't get in a van at the park. Van was like a problem. Van plus candy was nightmare. You knew. This is not that sort of fear. 
I just want to talk about the 80s for a minute. The fear that the Scripture is talking about, so that people fear before him. What's the so that referring to? That God endures forever, that he's done everything that you don't add to him, so that people fear before him. This fear is a holy recognition of God's supremacy. This is the wild-eyed acknowledgement of his glory and his power that if he wants you here today, it's his choice to have you here. And if he wants you gone tomorrow, it's done. This is that sort of fear. This is like there's a tornado in your next door neighbor's yard. You acknowledge that there's power, that you do nothing to control it, and then you respond to that tornado in your next door neighbor's yard. This is that fear. What am I going to do? Well, we have the opportunity to respond is what Scripture tells us. And our proper response is to run to the all-powerful God. Over and over, Scripture says, your response to God is to run to God. Your response to God's awesomeness and his power and his omnipotence, your response to God is to run to God. That's the response that wins the day. Which is to say, what we usually do when we're fearful and we are fearful because we are insecure We run to things. We chase things. We chase people. We chase ideas. We want to trend. We want to be part of something. We chase education and money and sex. We chase all the things because we're insecure and we're fearful, and we're fearful of the wrong thing. And if we fear God, we run to God because we know only in him is there security. When we find ourselves in our insecurity, we chase everything else the world has to offer. And what the scripture is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes is you don't need to chase the next thing. This preacher tells us the story. He spent all of life chasing the next thing. And the result of all of it, of everything that he ever had, was vapor, was meaningless. It was worthless. It was vanity. And what he says is only God is eternal. Only God lasts. Only God lasts. Everything else goes back to dust. You can't add to him, and so enjoy the life you've been given. You can't catch vapor. You can't hold on to the fog. So he's telling you, release the urge to try. Enjoy the moments you've been given. Stop striving for the next thing or the next season. Live in this season right here today. And some of you are in seasons that I don't envy. And he says, live in it. Soak in it. It's good for you, I promise. especially in the weeping, especially in the mourning, especially in the grieving. Sit in it. We are so quick to pause life on the good times if we can just freeze everything on a hammock in the shade in the summer. Can that just be life? And God says, that's not a life. That misses all the ingredients that make life life. Stop racing out of the season that you're in God says there is a season to build up and there's a season to tear down. Find people to sit with you in the hard season. Find people to sit with you in the ashes of grief. Find people to sit with you, to to talk to you, to walk with you. Find those people. That's what the season's about. There's an enrichment happening even when it's hard. These are necessary ingredients for the life that was created for you. God created you, knows you, and created a life and a plan And part of it's not going to be a lot of fun. And so what he's inviting you to do is to let go of the never-ending chase for what is next or what is better or what is new. And instead, acknowledge with proper fear and awe, acknowledge that he did this. He did it. He made it. He spoke it. 
you exist because he chose to have you exist. And everything less is vapor, it's breath, it's meaningless. He's saying, live fully in the season I have you in because I have you in the season you're in for a purpose. Maybe the challenge is to live in today. This is harder than it's ever been. It's 2022. It's hard to live in today because in your pocket, that same thing that you checked the weather on this morning, you can scroll through everyone else's today instead of your own. Whose today looks better than mine? Whose life, whose wealth, whose body, whose today is better than mine? Let me just look for somebody else's better. And we scroll and we waste our lives away because we're chasing something else. And God says, you were given your life, you were given your today for a reason. The invitation is live in today because there is a gift in it for you. Be here, be now. He has made it beautiful in its time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Even if you can't zoom out far enough to see it. He's put eternity into your heart. And so the longing you feel in the tough season, the yearning and the longing you feel when things are hard and you go, this is not the season I asked for, that yearning and that longing is your acknowledgement somewhere deep within you that heaven exists, that eternity is real, that there is a better and a perfect version of where you are today, that the pain that you're feeling, that the challenge that you're in, that the problems you are running through, that all of the weight you are carrying, there is a better way. And the yearning you feel is he has put eternity in your hearts. And you can't escape it and run from that. You just long for it. And in those seasons that we are down in the valley, God says, long for the mountaintop again because you're coming back. So today on this side of heaven, the instruction is eat and drink and rest and live. With God, there's no need to chase tomorrow because he is good and he is here. And even in the mystery, we've been promised an ending that will satisfy completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, don't like mystery. God, I don't like not knowing. I don't like not understanding. Father, I want to anticipate the next thing. I want to know what's around the corner, and yet you tell me to trust and live in today. So God, for me, my prayer for me, help me live in today. Help me embrace where you have me today. Help me to recognize that the longing and the yearning is your eternity calling out. Father, for each heart in here, I have the same prayer. Let us be a people that are so present with you in the moment that it's almost unsettling for those around us, that we would refuse to be a distracted people, we'd refuse to be a people that are distant from you, but instead we would be present with you and active in your work. God, we'd recognize you in our midst. So Father, thank you for your word, even when it's challenging. God, thank you for a day, another day to breathe and live and find your purpose. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.